The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. So ladies and gentlemen, today is February 16th, 2022, and on behalf of the team here at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the staff of the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the first event of the 2022 spring season of the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. This season's theme is a great power competition. We welcome listeners from all over the world to tonight's live stream lecture event, and we're excited to welcome our in-person audience right here listening live in our lecture hall. For those of you listening from home, uh, remember that you can submit questions uh, for our Q&A at the end of the lecture by either emailing our main USA HEC uh, email address by going to our website or by sending us a note in Facebook Messenger. Uh, simply go on to Facebook, look up USAHEC, and you can send us a message directly. And I'll be monitoring those questions to ask them for you for the question and answer. So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker. We're excited to welcome someone who most of us know very well, our very own Dr. Michael Nyberg. Dr. Nyberg is the Chair of War Studies and, the prof and Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College. Dr. Nyberg's published work specializes on the First and Second World Wars, notably the American and French experiences. One of his more recent books, Dance with the Furies, Europe and the Outbreak of World War, was named by the Wall Street Journal as one of the five best books ever written on the First World War. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Michael Nyberg. Thanks very much, Carl, and thank you to everybody for coming. Thanks everybody out there in, in internet land. It is just terrific to be in an actual audience seeing actual people, even if I can only see the top halves of your faces. Um, I'm really delighted to be here and really delighted to talk about uh, this project. What I want to do here is talk really in two phases. Uh, the first phase, the first half of this talk roughly, I want to talk about the real shock uh, that American st strategists and strategic planners faced when France fell in June of 1940. And then in the second half of this talk, I want to talk about the ways in which the United States responded to this very weird, very strange, very unusual political entity known as Vichy France that I'll, I'll talk about here in just a minute. Some of the words and some of the, the, the ways that people were thinking about what now, I think by looking at the sources and doing the book, the United States planners expected France to do in the Second World War what it had done in the First World War, namely to hold the Germans at bay for a couple of years, long enough for the United States to mobilize, long enough for the United States to choose the time of its entry into the war. In other words, it would buy the United States time, what we would call it in political science terms at the Army War College, the United States was acting as a free rider on French security because U.S. goals and French goals overlapped. This allowed the United States to be isolationist. It allowed the United States to cut defense budgets. It allowed the United States not to think very much about Europe as long as France was one of those cornerstones of the security architecture of Europe. When France fell in just six weeks, it was a cataclysmic shock. And I would argue that it is from this moment that American strategists and American security planners decide that this country will never again 
subcontract its security to a third power. The United States will, after this moment, take care of its own security, something, of course, that we have done ever since. And I just want to give you a few of the words here. Secretary of War Henry Stimson, to whom I'll return in just a bit, called it the most shocking single event of the war. He wrote that in 1948, when there were plenty of other quite shocking events that he could have mentioned. William Longer is the one that uh, I find most interesting. Longer was an historian at Harvard. Uh, when the United States made some of these decisions about Vichy, the American Secretary of State Cordell Hall was so worried that it would backfire and that he would later be facing charges of having aided and abetted the Germans that he hired Longer to come to the State Department and write a history of this experience favorable to Cordell Hall. And we have the original manuscript pages that Longer typed up just over here in the reading room, which was kind of fun to go through. Um, so let me explain what this is. As some of you know, most of you know, I assume, in 1940, Germany invaded the Low Countries in France and in six weeks defeated the French and uh, signed a surrender ceremony, an armistice ceremony at Compiègne outside Paris, the same place where the armistice of 1918 was signed. Now, despite the collapse of the French army, France came out of these negotiations reasonably well for reasons that I think are, are, are still somewhat mysterious. We don't have the original German foreign ministry uh, documents to the best of my knowledge. So there's not much understanding of the German side of this. This map is a little more complicated than we need to make it. Let's just divide France for the purposes of this into two zones. The northern zone is occupied France, which comes under German military occupation. And if you think about the First World War, you'll understand why the Germans want this particular map. What this lets Germany do is put submarine bases on the Atlantic coast at Brest, Saint-Lazare, and a couple of other ports along the west, so they don't have to worry about being blockaded. They also get to put forces on the southern side of the English Channel. They get Paris, and they get the industrial northeast. The rest of the country, that area that's in purple there, technically becomes another country, uh, which will at first be called the l'état français, the French state. It will soon be called Vichy France, after the very small uh, spa town, resort town, that uh, they'll move the seat of government to in 1940. So France is technically divided into two countries. The southern one is technically neutral and independent. It's its own state. So we're already into a kind of a weird zone where you have really, according to this map, you have really six different French occupation zones, but for our purposes, just two. Here's the key, and here's where it starts to get strange. As part of the negotiations for the armistice, the French ended up getting two things out of this deal, and I'll show you on the map here in just a second. One, they kept control over the entire French overseas empire. That remains controlled by Vichy. And two, they kept the French fleet, which is going to be critically important in the way that this is going to go. Now, not to make this too much about the internal workings of the Vichy French government, but here's what their leadership was thinking. They were thinking, this war is now no longer about France. It is now going to be a stalemate between Europe's greatest land power, Germany, and Europe's greatest sea power, Britain. What they expected was that Germany would defeat the British. There were actually people making bets on this. Six to eight weeks was about the over-under. And when that happened, they assumed, Germany would then come back to the French and expect France to take their side in the next peace conference. Now, all, we all know now that was completely delusional thinking. But that's the way that they're thinking. And I just wanted to make sure we understand what they're doing. I can talk more about them in a bit. This talk is certainly not designed to uh, defend their reputation or restore that reputation. Let me make clear on that. OK, here's what the French Empire looks like. Every place it has a little French flag on it. 
the five that are in stars right there are the ones that American planners were really worried about. They include, of course, Indochina, which is just to the west of the American uh, colony of the Philippines. They include Dakar, Senegal, which is really important to American planners because it controls this, what the American planners called the Brazilian bump. It controls that space right there. Morocco, which gives access to the Atlantic Ocean for whoever controls it. The rocky outposts of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, up where my friend John Kluge was getting his PhD in the middle of a frozen wilderness of Canada. And the island of Martinique in the Caribbean, uh, which not only held France's uh, lone aircraft carrier, it also held half of the French gold supply. Vichy France controls all of that. Now, if you're an American planner, you didn't have to think about any of these places very much until the fall of France. Now, all of a sudden, you really have to worry about them. Now, for the record, the aircraft carrier is not that important. Um, the, the Americans finally do work out a deal that the French will take the planes off the carrier and put them on, on land so that they're no direct threat to Puerto Rico or even Miami or even New Orleans, theoretically. Um, and they work out a deal with St. Pierre and Miquelon quite controversially that I can talk about as well. The French Navy is the other real question for American planners. It is modern, it is well run, it is well led, and nobody quite knows what to make of it. Will it remain neutral? Will it do what the British and Americans want it to do, which is sail to an American or British port and be disarmed for the duration of the war? Or will the Germans somehow get a hold of it? And you can see what William Bullitt, the American ambassador to France right before the fall of France, thought. He told FDR, you will be unable to protect the United States from German attack if the Axis gets this fleet. And some of you know that know your World War II history, know what Winston Churchill's answer to this dilemma was. He sent the British Navy to do a surprise attack on part of the French fleet at a place called Mers el Kabir in Algeria. What it does in the United States, however, is create a genuine sense of panic. Most Americans presumed that France could not have fallen had there not been agents working inside France, pro-German agents working inside France. And they're not 100% wrong. The example that I love to use for this, and I use in the book, is this movie, Confessions of a Nazi Spy, starring Edward G. Robinson. It's based on an actual real-life case where the Germans had sent over what we would today call sleeper cells, German agents that would work here in the United States, integrate into the United States, and when they got the orders, they would start blowing up factories, creating trouble wherever they could. It's a pretty ham-fisted plot. The FBI figures it out. They arrest one of the ringleaders. He leads them to a lot of other people. The FBI gets all sorts of new powers as a result of this case. The point is, the movie goes nowhere. In June 1940, Warner Brothers decided to release it again, now that France had fallen. And it becomes a runaway blockbuster. It gets new reviews in the media thanking Warner Brothers for bringing to the public's attention the danger of the Nazi menace. And you can see some of the quotations here that appear in American media. This is going to lead directly to fears about what the Japanese American population is up to and questions of loyalty about them, what to do about the threats that Americans see inside. What it also does is lead to a remarkable flurry of activity out of the United States government. Now that France is no longer there as a bulwark, now that France is no longer there as a potential American ally, the United States now has to take more responsibility for its own defense. This country, which had been isolationist and which had refused to increase defense authorizations, suddenly goes insane spending money. And it's probably a good thing that it did. In May and June of 1940 alone, 
The United States passed the single largest defense appropriation bill in its history up to that point, the Two Ocean Navy Act, to build seven battleships, 18 aircraft carriers, 33 cruisers, 115 destroyers, 43 submarines, and 15,000 sea-based airplanes. That's remarkable. Before the fall of France, they were cutting that bill to the bone. After the fall of France, they were throwing money into that bill faster than anybody could imagine. The United States also passed the Burke-Wadsworth Selective Service Act, the first peacetime conscription in American history. The first peacetime conscription in American history. President Roosevelt also ordered National Guard units mobilized so that they would get their annual training in. General Marshall put a plan before the president for a four million man army and a two million man army. Marshall recommended the two million man army, even though most people around the United States believe that the four million man army would have passed with no problem if the president had only asked for it. Still, a two million man army in peacetime is exceptional for this country. And 36,000 plane Air Corps. When the federal budget was then $9 billion, $9 billion for the entire federal government, the United States committed $12 billion to defense. That's remarkable. This is when debt ceiling limitations first come in. This is when new taxes come in, all of this stuff, in order to afford all of this. The United States agreed to something called the Destroyers for Bases Agreement, where we gave the British 40 World War I destroyers that could barely stay afloat. The point wasn't the destroyers for the United States. The point was we wanted the British bases in the Caribbean to make sure we could keep an eye on Martinique and Guadeloupe, make sure they didn't do anything we didn't want them to do. As far as the British were concerned, the destroyers were useless, but the fact that the United States gave them in a time of war was symbolic enough. They were happy enough. President Roosevelt also decided, right around the time of the fall of France, that he would run for president again when that hadn't yet been de decided. Remember, that's an unprecedented third term in office. He also decided to get rid of both his Secretary of War and his Secretary of the Navy and replace them both with Republicans in the closest thing the United States has to a unity government. He called Henry Stimson back from retirement, and he went and got Chicago newspaperman Frank Knox, who had run for president as a Republican, vice president as a Republican in 1936, and asked him to be Secretary of the Navy. That's also a remarkable step that I cannot imagine an American politician doing today. Roosevelt also did something else. He signed an executive order in which he told the Department of Justice to ignore a recent Supreme Court decision on wiretaps. The Supreme Court ruled that wiretaps were unconstitutional. Roosevelt decided that since that case was about revenue fraud, it didn't apply to the national security emergency that the fall of France created. Therefore, he told the Justice Department, go ahead and ignore it. Even though, he wrote, it's likely to lead to abuses of civil rights. And all this happens in about a six-week period. Now, what to do about Vichy France? Well, that depends on what you think about these two guys. The man on the right is hopefully familiar to some of you, Henri-Philippe Pétain. He is well, well known in the United States. A simple Google search produced, uh, sorry, I should say, back in 1940, 26 American states had Pétain streets, Pétain avenues, or Pétain boulevards. A simple Google search I did when I was doing the project revealed that only two still do. And Antoine's restaurant in New Orleans had a dish named after him. He's the man who saved the French army in the First World War. He's a very close friend to John Pershing and a very, very familiar face to most Americans. He becomes the head of state. He becomes the face of this regime. He's the guy that the cult of personality is going to be built upon. He's also 84 years old. He falls asleep in meetings. And it's not 100% clear that he actually is the power behind the throne. The man who is, is this guy on the left, Pierre Laval, also reasonably well known to Americans, 
Um, he had been involved in debt negotiations in the Hoover administration. He had been prime minister of France. He'd actually been time man of the year uh, at one point, but not particularly well liked in the United States. And you can see the opinion of someone who knew him well. He was a squatty, villainous-faced old man. Laval is the guy who's going to use the Vichy state to try to completely rebuild French society. It's Laval who's going to get rid of La Marseillaise as the French national anthem, get rid of Bastille Day as the French holiday, get rid of liberty, fraternity, equality in place of work, family, fatherland, a conservative, rural, based on yeoman farmers and the Catholic Church vision of France. He's also the guy who's going to be responsible for turning Jews over to the Germans even before the Germans ask them to do so in order to stay in the good graces of Germany. What this means is, if you have an opinion about Vichy France, it likely is determined by which of these two guys you think is actually calling the shots. If it's Pétain, then there's hope. If it's Laval, then there isn't. Now, there's another option. There is this man on the far right, the junior most brigadier general in France when France fell, Charles de Gaulle, then serving as an undersecretary of defense. In the middle of June 1940, he took up an offer by his friend and minister of member of parliament, Sir Edward Spears, a general from the First World War, to get on an airplane, leave France, come to London, and establish a free French government in exile, which many of you know he does. He goes to Carlton Garden and gives that famous speech on the BBC that nobody heard when he gave it, but now every Frenchman can recite. And it's on metal placards in most French uh, official buildings. And he will create a free French government in exile under the aegis of a guy who didn't particularly care for him, Winston Churchill, and a guy who thought he might well be insane, Anthony Eden, who is standing behind Churchill. Nevertheless, they immediately make the decision not to recognize Vichy France and to take their chances with Charles de Gaulle instead. The United States is going to take a very, very different approach, rejecting Charles de Gaulle and recognizing the Vichy state. Why? Part of the reason is something that this guy did. And I'm going to come back to him at the end with a request at the end to the provost when I do at the end, since he's here. This is Count René de Chambrun. He is married to Pierre Laval's daughter. There she is, José Laval. So his father-in-law is the prime minister of France. He is also a direct descendant of the Marquis de Lafayette, which makes him a statutory American citizen and very well known in the United States. He's also related by marriage to the Longworth family, which makes him distantly related to the Roosevelts as well. This is a very interesting guy. Even before the Vichy state is established, his father-in-law, Pierre, says, get on a boat, get to the United States, and convince them that France and America can still be friends. He spent a weekend, the weekend of June 17, 18, on the presidential yacht with Franklin Roosevelt, convinced Roosevelt that France and the United States can remain friends despite this defeat, then moved into the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, DC, and met with anybody who would talk to him, trade union groups, conservative groups, whoever it is. His Aunt Alice, Alice Roosevelt, the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt, helped him meet all the people who were important in Washington. Alice Roosevelt is one of my favorite figures from this period. Theodore Roosevelt is supposed to have said, I can run the country or I can run Alice. I cannot possibly do both. And Chambrun presented to American leaders a very alluring image that even though France had fallen, it would remain pro-American in its orientation, it would remain neutral in the war between Great Britain and Germany, and it would remain intensely anti-communist. 
What Chambron wanted in return was recognition, diplomatic recognition of the Vichy government and aid and assistance like the aid and assistance the United States had given to France in the First World War. And the Roosevelt administration will take this deal and run with it. There were people in America already at this instant disagreeing. Herbert Hoover, who had run so much humanitarian aid into France in the First World War, absolutely refused to do it in the Second World War because he could see what Vichy was about. Nevertheless, the United States decided to take this gamble. Roosevelt first went to Henri-Philippe Pétain's best friend, John Pershing, and asked him to be the ambassador to this new state of Vichy, France. Pershing was in ill health and declined it, so it went to this man, William Leahy, um, who some of you, I'm sure, know William, who William Leahy is. He will go on to create the office that will become the joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's the first American to wear five stars, and he's a very important figure in the Roosevelt circle. He's also an admiral, which means he knows Navy stuff, and he has a wife who speaks perfect French and who loves France and had lived in France. So he's a perfect choice. And John Pershing sent him a very nice note saying, I am glad to see that a better man has been chosen for this assignment. All right, a little postscript to this, because it relates to our reading room here. Uh, in 1961, when another American, General uh, Gavin, was selected as American ambassador to France, he asked for all of the things that Leahy had done in Vichy, France. He wanted all of Leahy's papers so that he could prepare himself for this difficult assignment he was going to get as John Kennedy's ambassador to France. It's because of that connection that all of Leahy's papers are there in that reading room. So this facility has a lot more of Vichy, France stuff than you might expect. Leahy came to Vichy as the senior American diplomat here. He was working with some other people too. One of the first big OSS spy projects is done uh, in North Africa, which is Vichy territory. That's done under Wildville Donovan, whose papers are also over here. Um, and he quickly, Leahy did, became disillusioned with what he saw of Vichy France. He quickly realized that although Pétain's heart was in the right place, he was too old to run the state, and there were too many people around him trying to pull power away from him, so that it would be unlikely that the United States could build a foreign policy around this man. Uh, nevertheless, Roosevelt continued to tell him to stay there, do the best that you can, do as much as you can to, to bring Vichy onto the United States' side. Um, and Leahy began to report on all sorts of things, including the anti-Semitism inside the regime and including some uh, behavior by the regime that clearly showed they were under the thumb of Germany. Now, what I want to stress here is how unbelievably unpopular this policy of recognition of Vichy was among the American people. And I want to do that with the next two slides. The first of those two comes from Theodore Dreiser, the political cartoonist from PM Magazine, better known to us today as Dr. Seuss. He drew a number of anti-Vichy cartoons. These are two that I've picked here. The one on the left has Adolf Hitler with Pierre Laval and Benito Mussolini underneath him as, as, as dogs, as sled dogs, uh, with war spoils, which is the bones of a rotted fish. And Hitler says to them, carry on, my faithful dogs, and you shall each share equally. And all you have to do is look at the face of Pierre Laval right there to realize what Dr. Seuss and many of his readers felt. The second cartoon comes from a very important moment when the Vichy government, Pétain, found out that gold that Belgium had given to the French to hide, to keep inside France, Laval was about to turn over to the Germans. So Pétain took the very courageous step to fire Laval and sent him out of Vichy. Laval went to Paris. Uh, when the Germans found out about it, they marched Laval down, back down to Vichy at gunpoint and reinstalled him as prime minister. What more evidence could you have that it's Germany that's calling the shots? 
So this cartoon on the right has Pétain opening the door, and there is Laval being brought back to the door by a cat with Hitler's face and swastikas on his fur. And the caption reads, Marianne, look what the cat brought back. Marianne is the symbol of the French Republic. So it's important to understand at this point, we're talking 1941 into 1942, mostly 1942, it isn't yet clear that President Roosevelt has a complete grasp on foreign policy. It's not yet clear that the United States actually has a plan and a strategy to deal with the multiple crises that are hitting. So Roosevelt's beginning to take a lot of criticism from people who want to see him do something more. There are very few subjects on which Roosevelt gets more criticism than on Vichy. And I want to show you the second uh, example of this, which I hope you all recognize. It comes from the end of that beautiful, brilliant, phenomenal movie Casablanca, when the French prefect Louis Reynaud, played by Claude Rains, who earlier in the film had been willing to work with Vichy. Remember, at the end of the film, he decides, no, I'm going to go join a free French unit and not arrest Humphrey Bogart. Well, you might have missed it, but this is what he does. He picks up a bottle of water and throws it into the garbage can. It's a bottle of Vichy water. Right? Anybody watching the film in 1942 would have understood the symbolism. I think sometimes it gets lost today, so I wanted to bring that one up. Also because it's such a great movie. Now you start to have a problem. The United States is backing Vichy, but our close allies, the British, have chosen Charles de Gaulle, leading to this great statement from Winston Churchill that the US and Britain cannot each have a pet Frenchman. The United States almost had a way out of this. We were very close to having a way out of this dilemma. And that appeared in the image of this guy on the left. His name is Henri Giraud, who is the commander of the French 7th Army when the war breaks out. He's one of those units that's cut off by that sickle cut that the Germans do. He's taken prisoner of war, and he's sent to a prison near Dresden, Germany. So he's not connected with the Vichy regime in any way. And because he's a soldier, he's also not connected to the corrupt politicians of the French Third Republic. In 1942, he escapes from this German prison, dodging the Gestapo all the way as they hunt him down trying to kill him. He gets to Vichy, planning to pledge loyalty to Pétain because that's the legal French government, quickly comes to the conclusion that this is nothing more than a German puppet, gets out of Vichy again, the Gestapo chases him again, and he finds his way first to Lisbon and then to London. The Americans think they've got the guy. This is the way we're going to reset our France policy. It's going to be Henri Giraud. That's how we're going to get out of this. There's only three problems. Giraud and de Gaulle hate each other. Neither one wants to recognize the authority of the other. Two, the British, who know Giraud better than the Americans, think he's a complete moron. And three, neither one of them has any actual authority over the French military. That's still the Vichy officers, one of whom I'll show you here in just a bit. So what do you do if you've got those two guys that you've got to choose from, and neither one actually has any authority? Nevertheless, for a time, it's going to be Giraud that the US will, will stick with. And I'll talk a little bit more about him uh, in just a bit. He's a fascinating guy, now almost completely lost to the histories of World War II. Fall of 1942, the United States and Britain, of course, decide that they'll begin their war in Europe, not in Europe, but in what they soon call the European Theater of Operations, which is a clever way of saying we're going to North Africa. It's very clever. With something called Operation Torch. Now, I argue in the book, most historians have argued to this point that the reason that the United States and Britain did this is because the Americans wanted to invade France, 
and the British wanted to do the indirect approach. It should not be underestimated that the United States' Vichy policy had become so unbelievably unpopular at this point that Roosevelt knew he had to do something about it. One of two things was going to happen. Either the, the American policy of friendship with Vichy was going to cost him and cost him badly. Right? He actually ordered Marshall to conduct this invasion before the midterm elections of 1942. Marshall, to his credit, said, I'm not going to do that. Or the Vichy government would collapse and Germany would just roll right in. So while the Vichy forces might shoot at you, the German forces absolutely would shoot at you. The answer to this is to get into North Africa as quickly as you possibly can. Now, how to do that when you don't know what those Vichy forces in North Africa are actually going to do? Are they going to resist you, or are they going to welcome you as liberators? And there's a painting in the third floor of Root Hall's, the second floor of Root Hall it says play ball, which is about this exact moment. The American forces got two code words. Batter up meant the French were actually shooting at you. Play ball meant you could shoot back. In other words, they're expecting resistance. They're expecting Vichy to resist. There's a wonderful story that I can get into more if anybody is interested in it, but General Mark Clark uh, got into a midget submarine and left Gibraltar. He landed on the coast of Algeria. One of the American spies that was involved in this set up a meeting for him with a, a man by the name of General Charles Mast, who was a Giro ally in North Africa, and they cut a deal. What we'll do is, if Mast can order French forces to put their weapons down, the United States will immediately turn control over North Africa over to the French. The United States won't try to govern it in any way. The Americans don't want to govern North Africa in any way. And the French, everybody from de Gaulle to Vichy to Giro, all of them, want to make sure that North Africa remains French. And those of you who have studied French history know Algeria, at this point in history, the French do not consider a colony. It is part of France. It is part of France. And these guys want to keep it that way. So they take this incredible risk of putting Mark Clark in a midget submarine and having him talk with one of the French generals. The problem, among the many problems that they have, nobody in the United States and very few people in Great Britain trust either Giraud or de Gaulle. So they write up their war plans without telling either guy. Giraud has no idea what the timing is, what the United States is planning to do. De Gaulle is kept in the dark as well. This is probably a good idea. Giraud had said that any operation that took place anywhere in French territory, he had to be the commander of it. That's not going to happen. And a couple of weeks, a couple of days actually, before Operation Torch, Giraud handed Eisenhower brand new war plans that would bypass North Africa and start the war in Corsica. Obviously, Eisenhower's not interested in doing that either. So Operation Torch began with Henri Giraud in Gibraltar, refusing to leave Gibraltar, and Charles de Gaulle in London, getting a phone call telling him that the Allies have begun operations in North Africa. And his answer is, very well, I hope the Vichyites throw them back into the sea. Not a very good answer. This is when General Sir Alan Brooke came to de Gaulle personally and made this great statement, I understand your bitterness, now overcome it, which to his credit, de Gaulle did. Now the other guy who didn't know when the Allies were going to land was Charles Mast, that guy that Clark had met with. Charles Mast is away from his command post inspecting units. When the invasion begins, Mast is out of communication, de Gaulle is angry in London, and Giraud is pacing in his room in Gibraltar. There's nobody there for the Americans to work with. So there's going to be uh, resistance from the, the, the French forces as, they, um, as the Americans land. 
here's where it gets really weird. This guy is in North Africa, and nobody expected him to be. This is Jean-Francois Darlon. So ingrained was the Navy in his soul that American intelligence codenamed him Popeye. He is from an ancient French military family, service all the way back to the Bourbon dynasty. Darlon is the head of the French Navy, and by default, the head of the entire Vichy military. And he wanted to join the war on the German side against the British in revenge for their attack on Merz el Kabir. And he's a really, really nasty, nasty guy. By coincidence, when this invasion happens, Mast isn't there, de Gaulle isn't there, Giraud isn't there. But Jean-Francois Darlon is in Algiers visiting his son Alain, who also, by coincidence, has the exact same strand of polio that Franklin Roosevelt has. That's going to become interesting when the United States is trying to figure out a way to bribe Darlan, right? Darlan is there. He's the nastiest, most disliked of all the Vichy officials, the least trustworthy, most pro-German, most anti-British. Yet there he is in Algiers. He actually does have the authority to order French forces to put their weapons down. What do you do? The American diplomat Robert Murphy decided to take a chance and go meet with him. And there's wonderful accounts of this. We have Murphy's account. We have one of the, the French officer's accounts. We actually have some of Darlan's accounts before uh, Darlan leaves the scene, which I'll explain here in just a bit. And after a lot of yelling and screaming, a lot of anger, a lot of how dare you shoot at my men, a lot of order your guys to surrender or we'll just move through them, a lot of yelling and screaming back and forth, they cut a deal. They cut a deal. Darlan will order American forces, French forces, excuse me, to stop shooting at the British and, and the Americans. In exchange, the Americans will move out of Algeria into Tunisia and leave Morocco and Algeria completely under the control of this guy, Jean-Francois Darlan. That's a problem. Because what it means is Darlan keeps the anti-Semitic laws in place that Vichy had put in. He allows fascist clubs to continue meeting in Algiers and Oran. He keeps the same people in place, the very people the United States wanted to arrest. As part of the deal, they all get to stay in place. And you can see what some Americans uh, did and their reactions to it. Edward R. Murrow, the great American journalist, are we fighting the Nazis or are we sleeping with them? And Ernie Pyle, our enemies, saw it, laughed, and called us soft. Both sides were puzzled by a country at war which still let enemies run loose against it. And I just love this observation from one American uh, senior official who met with him that Darlan was, quote, a short, bald-headed, pink-faced, needle-nosed, sharp-chinned little weasel. <laughs> Not a very uh, nice ringing endorsement either. Nevertheless, they cut what becomes known as the Darlan deal. And I love this picture. This is Clark and Darlan shaking hands and smiling for the cameras. And if you look really carefully, there's a picture of Henri-Philippe Pétain looking over his shoulder, blessing the whole thing. In reality, Pétain was, as you can imagine, furious. The Germans took this as the moment when the Vichy French experiment was over, and they invade and occupy the rest of France and try to take the French fleet, which is sitting at Toulon. Now, Darlan had issued an order that if anybody other than a Frenchman tried to take that fleet, they were to sink the fleet, they were to scuttle it, even if, he said, you get a written order from me to the contrary. And that's what they do. They scuttle the entire fleet that's sitting in Toulon. Now, it has to be said, once the United States began working with Darlan, Darlan began 
to do for the Americans what he had done uh, for the Germans and for Vichy. In other words, he became a very cooperative partner. And this is the part to me that is really, really interesting. He became an American ally, an American partner, whatever one wants to call it. So much so that British diplomats thought maybe the Americans had pulled a trick. Maybe the Americans knew that Darlan was going to be in Algiers anyway, and this is what they wanted to do all along. Right? Alexander Cadogan, who was the permanent uh, um, foreign affairs undersecretary, said he promised a God almighty row with the Americans if he could figure out that the United States was behind this. Okay, there's no evidence that, all the evidence I can find is the Americans knew he was coming to Algiers, but expected him to be gone long before the invasion happened. He appears to have stayed because he wanted to spend more time with his son. Now Darlan is stuck in Algiers, a place that he hates. He's got to figure out a way to govern North Africa. He's got to keep the Americans happy. And that's exactly what he does. One British statement where one British officer says about him, once bought, he stayed bought. In other words, he was as pliant to the Americans as he was to the Germans. I think if what happens next doesn't happen next, it's entirely likely that Jean-Francois Darlan is the guy the United States would have stuck with for the rest of the war and likely for the immediate period after the war, which would have produced an entirely different post-war history of France. That's not going to happen, though. Christmas Eve 1942, a young man named Ferdinand Bonnier de la Chapelle, a member of the French Resistance, gets a gun from a Jewish member of the Resistance, the only pistol that they could find, and he gets a set of forged papers provided to him by a priest so that he can sneak into the Summer Palace, which is the building that Darlan was using as, as his headquarters, south of Algiers. He waits in the office right next to Darlan's, waits until he hears Darlan climb the stairs, walks out of the office, and shoots him dead. Christmas Eve, 1942. Darlan is now gone. He's off the scene. Now, as cooperative as he had been for the United States, very few people are sorry to see him go. Anthony Eden, the British Foreign Secretary, I have not, been, I have not felt so relieved by any event for years. And Mark Clark, with his wonderful way with words, it's like the lancing of a troublesome boil. And you can see here Clark's also view of, of Darlan. Once we got him in the box for our side, he pitched big league ball, which is a terrible mixed baseball metaphor, but what are you going to do? Um, there's also an American intelligence officer who went to the funeral, came back and reported there wasn't a wet eye in the room, which I think is just a great line. <laughs> it's just a fabulous line. Um, we don't know who Bonnier de la Chapelle was actually working for. They uh, tried him, convicted him, and executed him in less than two days. They started making the coffin even before the verdict came in. Um, nevertheless, Darlan is gone, and the United States is now back once again uh, to square one in this problem. Uh, some of you know the way this is going to end, but uh, Giraud is going to eventually be just completely outmaneuvered by Charles de Gaulle. De Gaulle's ahead of him every step of the way. Uh, there's some tense moments where the, it looks like the two secret services for Giraud and de Gaulle are actually trying to kill one another. Uh, there's a moment in Algiers where they just refuse to talk to each other until the British step in and kind of patch things over. But little by little, bit by bit, de Gaulle is going to be the man who emerges, even though he's not America's preferred choice. And I can talk more about this. It's really difficult to find Americans in World War II saying nastier things than they say about de Gaulle, maybe about Hitler and Tojo and not much more. The Americans have an intensely negative view of Charles de Gaulle. Nevertheless, as we all know, it is de Gaulle who's going to emerge. And of course, it is de Gaulle who's going to emerge as the president of France in the post-war period. Uh, this is him and Dwight Eisenhower, with Eisenhower walking Charles de Gaulle around the battlefield at Gettysburg. 
There is a third head of government at this same time, the British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, who was also in North Africa dealing with Vichy issues as the senior British diplomat in North Africa. His letters are phenomenal because they are the most gossipy of all of the letters that come out of this time period. They're wonderful and very, very um, rumor-based. So here I'm going to come back to um, my uh, boss, Dr. Breckenridge here. Some of you have seen this flag, I think, if you are ever get the chance to go into Will Washko Hall here at the Army War College, or if you're going to the cafeteria to get a cup of their um, redacted coffee, uh, you'll see this flag. Uh, it is a flag given to the United States in 1978 that flew over the grave of the Marquis de Lafayette. Every year that flag is replaced and some American dignitary, in this case, Sakur Al Haig, takes the old flag and gives it in honor to somebody. This flag in 1978 came to the United States of America and came here to the Army War College. If you look at the document that is next to it, you'll see that the man who gave the flag to the United States Army War College was none other than Rene de Chambron. So my plea to the uh, uh, provost is when we move out of our old building and we move into our new building, that this flag somehow end up near my office and not in the Indiana Jones warehouse where top men will take care of it. Let's make sure that it ends up someplace good. Um, that's the story, of, very briefly, of the United States and Vichy France. I would be delighted to take any of your questions. Thanks for your attention. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, a reminder to the audience here in the room, if you've got a question, please raise your hand. John there in the back will come with the microphone. Please do stand up, uh, address your question into the microphone uh, so that our folks out in internet land can hear you. Also, for those of you who are tuned into our live stream, please go to our website. You can see the URL right there on the screen behind uh, Dr. Nyberg uh, and uh, email us your questions. Also, you can go to Facebook, uh, search for USAHEC and send us a message. I have both of those up on a computer right in front of me and we can ask your questions. Uh, so with that, do we have anybody out here in the crowd to ask our first question? We have one right here in the middle. Thanks for a very stimulating talk. Thanks. Hung on every word. Um, could I ask, what inspired you to choose this topic for your latest book? And how has it been received in France? <laughs> it's not a topic that the French uh, are fond of talking about. I... No, it's certainly not. Um, in fact, I had dinner with some French friends of mine when I told them that I thought I wanted to work on this project. And both of them looked at me and shook their heads and said, that's a really awful idea. They meant it. They meant it. This, it's a really awful idea. You shouldn't do it. Uh, the, the, the simple answer to your question is it has not yet received anything in France. It does not yet have a French translator, which is not unusual. That It takes time. It has to go through a bureaucratic process before foreign works can be translated into, into French. Um, it has received no response whatsoever yet. So I'm still waiting to see whether I did get my, uh, my French visa for my official passport back, so I'm good for a couple of years. And we'll see where it goes. Um, you know, as for why I wrote it, you know, Vichy has always been, to my mind, this really strange, odd, um, very unusual political animal. Um, there have been wonderful, wonderful books written about its domestic role inside France. There have been wonderful books written about the memory of Vichy inside France. There's been nothing done on Vichy and its relationship to the Second World War. In other words, Vichy had kind of been taken out of the military context and put into this context of French history. Um, and as some of you may know, it's become a real political 
football in the current French presidential election, which is coming up in April. It, it has, I don't want to get into that, but it's become an, an issue once again. So I guess for me, it was just this kind of hole in my understanding of the Second World War. Like, what, 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 what does this connect to? You know, what, what, parts, what other parts of the jigsaw puzzle does this help to make sense? And it, it makes a lot of things in my mind make sense. How the United States behaved, why US-French relations were so difficult afterwards, um, why the end of the Second World War didn't produce um, what the Americans called the Lafayette moment that they were waiting for, when the French would just come in and be all happy with us. Instead, of course, the French say, well, look, first you supported Vichy, then you supported Giraud, then you supported Darlan. You know, you only came to us when we didn't give you another choice. So uh, that was another part of it that I was trying to figure out. So I think that's the best answer I can give you. I honestly don't remember, my wife's in the room, I don't know if she remembers, I actually don't remember when the moment was where I said, that's it, that's, that's the book I'm gonna write. Um, I don't think I'd settled on it until I got to France and saw that there actually were archives on the French side that I could work with. That's the best answer I can give you. All right, sir, I have one from the internet here. Um, so did you, when you, in your research, did you see any pre-invasion in, pre indicators? Anything from the recent history between World War I and World War II that showed how uh, uh, an invasion of France might go, how these sorts of relations might happen uh, in the international community? Yeah, so what the Americans have already, uh, well, the Americans don't even think about what it would mean to liberate France, of course, until France has fallen, right? There's no, no one even thinks about that problem. Um, when they start to think about how they're gonna do this, the question, it's easy for American spies. It's, it's actually a fascinating story, too. You could do a book just on this. Um, this spy ring that they set up inside North Africa. These guys, that have, they're not professional spies. One guy was the Coca-Cola distribution guy in Marseille. I mean, they're, they're not professional spies. What they can do is count airplanes, they can count tanks, they can figure out you know, what flags soldiers are marching under. What they can't do is read in any way what these French guys are gonna do. Are they gonna welcome us or are they gonna shoot at us? What are they gonna do? So the invasion planning that they're doing really does come down to uh, what level of cooperation do we think we can expect from the Vichy government? What they come to at the end is expect nothing. If we get it, great, but expect nothing. And if we have to fight these guys, we'll fight these guys. Um, so it's a complicated process. I think there's more to it than the standard narrative of, of American and British historians, which is that it's a fight between the British who want to go to North Africa and the Americans who want to go to the west coast of France. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, there seem to be um, two primary competing opinions of Vichy, one that is a portrayal of everything French, and one far less popular that what else were the French going to do? I wonder if you could comment on that and perhaps in the process uh, explain a little bit about who came up with the idea. How did, how did Vichy come to be yeah. uh, and how were the lines drawn? Yeah, that's a great question. So. Uh, Robert Paxson, an American historian who was at Columbia for a lot, a lot of years, Paxson's a guy that, that blew this historiography up. Again, an American who writes a book, his book well-received in France, we'll see what happens now. Um, but Paxson argued, you can't see Vichy the way the French wanted to see it, which is this kind of parenthesis, what else could we do, the Germans had their boot on us. Instead, what Paxson argues is, what Vichy actually is, is an expression of a, of a political sentiment in France that goes all the way back to the people who opposed the French Revolution. So getting rid of the Bastille, getting rid of the, tri the Bastille Day, getting rid of the tricolor, getting rid of the Marseillaise is all a part of this process of getting rid of the French Revolution and going back to some idealized French past. 
So what Paxson argued is that's really what Vichy is. It's modern in the sense that it has these kind of fascist inclinations, but for the most part, it's looking to go backwards. It's reactionary. And those are the people who are leading it. So to get back to the question about you know, the, 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 the scabs that, that Vichy can, can, can produce, the Catholic Church is involved in this. Middle-class French people who want to keep their property and profit off of the state are involved. For a time, Vichy's really popular. Um, that starts to change in 1942 when Vichy starts to, um, it's actually Laval's idea to do this thing where they're going to start grabbing French men and sending them to Germany to work in German factories, something called the STO, the Service de Travail Obligatoire. That's when the French resistance really begins to, to kick up and Vichy becomes unpopular. Um, there was always a group of people in France that were anti-Vichy, but um, you're right. For a lot of people, the response is, well, what else is there? Uh, we're going to have to go with this until a, a, a real legitimate resistance movement builds up. And the United States, for, to be honest, until 1944, the US wanted nothing to do with the French resistance because it's heavily communist. So the United States, the last thing the US wanted to do was flood all these weapons into France, put them in the hands of communists, liberate France, and then find out that the French communists have taken the country over. That they didn't want to do, for good and obvious reasons. <laughs>
And Roosevelt says, he's not the head of a government, he's the head of some committee, right? He's not the head of, he's not the head of anything, right? Um, what, what's consistent, I think, from that BBC talk that he does in 1940, all the way through when he leaves public life in France in the late 1960s, is that de Gaulle has in mind, he'll do whatever he thinks is necessary for the pursuit of French interests. If that means working with the Americans, he'll work with the Americans. If that means telling the Americans to get out of Paris and move their NATO headquarters to Brussels, he'll do it. If that means working with West Germany, he'll do that too. Um, so, you know, I, I, one, of my, one of our trips to France, one of the girls was asking me why, why everything in France is named for Charles de Gaulle. And my answer was, I think if I were French, I'd want everything else to be named for Charles de Gaulle. Like he's, he's got this vision of what France is gonna be and he carries it out and France, you know, the United States has no, has not decided, did not decide whether they were gonna treat France like Italy, a conquered nation that they were gonna have to occupy or whether they were gonna treat it like Norway, a liberated country. The, the inclination was to occupy it. And de Gaulle makes sure that that doesn't happen, right? That France comes out with a Security Council vote in the UN, they come out independent, all of that stuff. Um, but in doing that, he burned an awful lot of bridges, uh, just because that's his personality. Um, I can't remember whether it's about Churchill or, or, or de Gaulle that said he's, I think maybe both, he's a man meant for crisis. If he can't, if he can't solve them, he'll create them. And that was de Gaulle. That was de Gaulle. But if you're French, I understand why every French politician ever since has tried to associate him or herself in some way with Charles de Gaulle, right? Even if his, you know, today it's fading a little bit, but. but sir, we have one from, uh, from the internet. This, uh, so I'm paraphrasing, but uh, can you talk a little bit about the American reaction or the British reaction or lack thereof uh, to Vichy officials and police rounding up communists, Jews, and other un desirables, transporting them to German, was that ever part of the calculus uh, as far as the Americans or the British were concerned? Yeah, I'm glad somebody asked that question because I had this, but I didn't want to talk about it because it's a whole nother can of worms. Um, the United States from June 1942 forward was aware that the Vichy regime was rounding Jews up and handing them to the Germans for deportation to concentration camps and probably death camps. The media pressure on that, that is as word starts to leak out, and it's a complicated story in and of itself, that forced Cordell Hall to say the following on September 16, 1942. He criticized, quote, the revolting and fiendish Vichy policy of sending Jewish refugees back to their native Axis countries or two camps in the East. He noted that the Germans have, quote, announced and in a considerable degree executed their intention to enslave, maltreat, and eventually exterminate Jews under the most extreme cruelty. It's the first reference that an American public official gives that we knew what the Germans were doing to the Jews. And it comes directly in reference to Vichy France. Uh, this is September 1942. In other words, there may be nothing we can do about what Germany is doing except beat them and win the war. But if this is what Vichy is doing and we're helping them in some way, then we could be morally complicit in what's going on as well. So the answer is yes, we knew, um, but we were trying as much as possible uh, no not to use that as a factor in swaying American policy, right? I think it is a factor in swaying American policy. That is, getting in Operation Torch, getting into North Africa, and putting military pressure on Vichy was the only way that you were gonna get this done. The only way you were gonna get them to stop doing this. And this is also an incredible controversy inside France. Uh, one of the current French presidential candidates has stated repeatedly and incorrectly that the Vichy French government treated Jews better than um, the occupied part, that is Jews in, the, in, in Vichy were safer 
than Jews in other parts. He's right and he's not right. He's right that statistically that's true, but it's because of their indifference or their incompetence, not because of anything they did to protect those Jews. So it's become a very controversial uh, subject. My friend Laurent Joly has ended up in the middle of this. He's written a bunch of things in France criticizing this particular presidential candidate. So it's been fun. Jim, I have no intention of getting involved in French politics or, or American politics. Don't worry. I think we had Jim Jacraco is hopefully not going to ask me a tough question because he's my neighbor. But uh, well, <laughs> just wondering if you, uh, different part of the world, uh, you showed into China <laughs> earlier. Um, were you, in your research, were you able to come up with any uh, interesting nuggets or about American attitudes towards Indochina uh, with the Vichy? Yeah, so the French, uh, the Vichy French uh, officials come to the Americans and they say, hey, look, Japan wants the right of access to Indochina. They want to be able to move troops through Indochina. They want use of the ports. They want use of the airfields. Um, this is before American entry into the war. This is 1940. Um, you have to give us some backing so that we can resist them, so we can tell them no. And the State Department's response is, hey, if we were you, we would just give in to them. Well, we can't help you, and you have no chance. You, you, you can't defend yourself either. So that's what happens. The Japanese end up uh, taking over all of Indochina right here. And of course, the American possession of the Philippines is right there. Um, and the United States tells the French, there's really nothing we can do to help you. You're on your own. Um, so again, the, getting back to the first question, this is what I meant by the kind of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle connecting together. I had just come back from Ethiopia uh, on an Army War College trip. And the first part of the empire that declares itself loyal to de Gaulle is the Central African Republic, which is right here. So the Ethiopia campaign of World War II is actually the Free French and the British working against the Italians in here to open up the Nile River Valley and the Red Sea. So again, everything is connecting to everything. Yeah, Jim. Okay, uh, follow up to that. Um, do you find anything by any chance about the, uh, the war between Vichy and Siam? Um, no. No, okay, just no. wonder if uh, US had any attitudes towards that at all? Uh, no, I didn't come across anything like that, and I'm trying to think if I came across anything like that in the French archives either, and I don't think I saw anything, though, to be honest, I don't think I was looking for it either. Yeah. So we, we are being flooded with questions from the internet. Um, I'm trying to put some of these together here. So uh, I'm going to move us up just a little bit. Um, and again, this is a combination of a few different questions. Can you talk a little bit about um, any equivalents or uh, possibly corollaries of things that have happened uh, uh, in, in international politics and in great power competition since uh, the formation of Vichy France, where there have been countries um, dealing with the same sort of situation? Uh, again, oh. a little bit nebulous there on the, on the exact question, but can we learn anything since then? Can we draw any other corollaries to military history you since know, then? When you write a book, um, you, it goes out to two random uh, people that know who you are, but you don't know who they are. And they write what are called anonymous peer reviews that go to the press. And basically, the press either says, we're going to publish or we're not going to publish based on those reports. One of those reports came from someone who has since identified herself, and we've, we've since, I, I got to meet her up in Boston and have some pretty good conversations. She came back and said to me, look, what, what this really is a story of, the, the thing that's not in the book that should be, is America's willingness to hold the hands of dictators in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. The American willingness to look the other way when it comes to domestic policy if it's in our strategic interest. Okay, I mean, I didn't want to make the book about that, but I think she's right. Um, and that was part of you know, what, what I argue in the end of the book, that if we had kept Jean-Francois Darlan as our guy, 
uh, there was an analogy to that. That is, at the end of World War II, we were perfectly willing, even though we just fought a war against fascism, to leave Franco in Spain and leave Salazar in Portugal. No one was interested in doing anything to move them. So it's entirely possible the United States could have done the same thing. So I'm going to duck that question a little bit by pointing to, to, to Brooke's very good point that this really is a story about what you do when your strategic interest tells you one thing, but the human rights issue and your common sense tells you something else. I couldn't help but notice that one of the cartoons you put up was Dr. Seuss. It is. Was he a political satirist? He was. Okay. There's actually a book called Dr. Seuss Goes to War with all of his World War II cartoons. Um, they are shockingly racist, uh, especially against the Japanese. Like, when you think Dr. Seuss, you don't think this nasty uh, a racist portrayal, but it's there. Um, and he was also, from the very beginning, anti-fascist and anti-any cooperation with this bunch at all, and also anti-isolationist from the very beginning, too. So he has a lot of cartoons uh, lambasting the America Firsters, lambasting Charles Lindbergh, all of that group. But if you're interested, there's, it's actually a book called uh, Dr. Seuss Goes to War, which I'm sure we probably have. Uh, and they're, they're fun cartoons to look through. You can actually Google. Some of them will just come up if you Google them. All right, we have our last question right here. So what were the Germans' stated and maybe not stated goals for setting up Vichy France? Like, Great question. Do you have any insights into yep. what they really thought, it, how it, they really thought it would turn out? Yep, I was talking to a few German colleagues of mine who have been in the diplomatic archives, um, which, you know, the Nazis burned a lot of that stuff. Some of it was destroyed by the USA Air Force. Um, not all of it survives. The thinking seems to be that there's at least two, maybe three motives. One is the Germans don't want to have to occupy all of this. If you can push that occupation onto the French and keep them pliant, let them do it. That's number one. Number two, there seems to have been a real fear among the Germans that their biggest nightmare in France would, was going to be the communist resistance. Uh, now, in 1940, this isn't a problem because Germany and the Soviet Union have uh, a non-aggression pact. But if and when, when the Germans invade the Soviet Union, that's going to be a problem. What they wanted was for Vichy to take care of that problem. So the v and Vichy is going to create this organization called the Milice, which is going to do incredibly nasty things. So one of the reasons why the French don't like to talk about this period is that the war is not Germany versus France. It's really Frenchmen against Frenchmen. It's much more that than it is anything with the Germans. So those are two. The third theory, and I'm, frankly, I don't buy it. The third theory is that what they were trying to signal to the rest of the world is, yes, we have some things that we want. Yes, we want to change the map of Europe. But we're not interested in taking countries off the map. We're not interested in removing countries. So that when they went to England in the peace treaty, they could say to the British, we're going to do something similar to what we did to the French. And we actually do have a document where the, the British um, suspect and the French suspect, the free French suspect, what the Germans are going to do is come to the British and say, we're taking Ireland, we're taking Cardiff, and we're taking part of your empire, but we'll leave the rest to you. In other words, we've done this before, we're going to do it again. It's not, it's not an all or death struggle. I put most faith in that first explanation. What they didn't want to do was have to occupy all of this. As long as France is neutral, as long as the French fleet is neutral, you're fine. Uh, the other element that's playing in here is the Italians have already made territorial demands. They want Algeria. They want Corsica. They want Tunisia. 
So the Germans were perfectly happy to leave France just strong enough that France and Italy would have to worry about each other. Then neither one is really worried about what Germany's doing. Right? I think that works in the first couple years and then goes away as the Germans need Italy wrapped back in. Uh, now, all that said, um, nobody that I've spoken to has found the smoking gun, that is the document that says, this is why we did what we did. So barring finding of that, we're, we're, we're basing our conclusions based on what, what seems to make the most sense. Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate it. This is great. Great questions. Thank you. If I can ask everyone to keep, keep your seat for just one moment, I'd like to introduce uh, Molly Bompain. She's our team lead for exhibits here at the AHEC, and representing the entire staff, uh, she has just a few words to say. Dr. Nyberg, that was fantastic. I can't remember the last time I learned so much in an hour. <laughs> and, and I share um, that gentleman's same thought. I was hanging on every word. So on behalf of AHEC, we'd like to thank you for a riveting evening. And um, from leadership and staff, we're very fortunate to have um, Dr. Nyberg as a colleague and a friend who shares his it's with such a wide array of expertise and so generously shares it with us, you know, whether it's advice or um, collaboration. So we're, we, we love when he's here and it's always nice to see you. Uh, we have a presentation for you. Oh, awesome. Yes, <laughs> of course. And I would like to read it to our group too, because this is a Ridgeway coin that we were presenting, Dr. Nyberg, and it has something very um, kind of poignant and fits the evening. The soldier must be rooted in the past to understand the present, that he may project himself into the future. And Dr. Nyberg, you are a key piece of that. And we, and this is how we present the coin. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank and you. we invite all of our visitors here to um, continue with their lecture series and visit us online. All the documents that Dr. Nyberg had mentioned and the collections that he utilized um, in researching his book are available online and uh, or will be. It keeps growing and evolving. And we invite you to explore our digital collections as well. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.